This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Who he says he is. The reason I point this out is because this sign is opening up for us a new section in the Gospel of John that's going to speak about Jesus' compassionate authority. His compassionate authority. And we know that's what this section is about because when we look at the other bookend to this miracle in chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but the, the other bookend to this miracle in chapter 9, the fifth sign, is, is a sign where Jesus performs almost an identical miracle where He heals a man who had been born blind and was blind all of his life and uh, followed by the religious leaders asking all the wrong questions again. So for the next cha- four chapters, we're going to see different aspects of Jesus' compassionate authority in stark contrast to the religious leaders' harsh, overbearing, self-serving authority. So this morning, in in contrast to the the harsh condemnation of these religious leaders that we'll see in a moment, the question that I want to to answer is, what does it look like to be healed by this Jesus? What does it look like to be healed by Jesus' compassionate authority? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Let's pray before we get there and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for the gift of Your Word. I thank You for the gift of of the lives in this room, new and old. And I, I pray, Lord, for everyone that You would open our ears and soften our hearts that as we just sang, you would shape and fasten us into a better image of Christ. That, Father, we would want to walk with Him, as Him, to, to be a better picture of Him to this world. So, Father, show us what that looks like this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to make sure you all didn't miss a very important feast that took place last Sunday, February 11th. I'm not talking about the Super Bowl feast of barbecue wings and pizza in the uh, mid-1800s. There's a 14-year-old girl who said she saw apparitions of the, of the Virgin Mary in a pool uh, in a place called Lourdes, France. Lourdes, France. And since then, people have attributed healing to the, to the waters in that pool. In fact, the Catholic Church has officially recognized 70 healings from this pool in Lourdes, France, until 1933 when this young lady, well, she was since dead by then, but she was finally canonized by the church as St. Bernadette. And the feast of Our Lady of Lourdes was established on February 11th to commemorate the apparitions and the healings that have come from this place. And some six million people travel there each year in hopes of seeing Mary and or being healed in this pool. Now, unfortunately, and I might even say ironically, the healing pools of of Lourdes, France had to be closed for several months in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I I guess there's only so much the Virgin Mary can do, right? But, But rest assured that the pool is now open again and crowds are returning to their to their previous numbers. But isn't that how our world is? Isn't that how things go? 
Whether it be healing waters in Lord's France or, or Jesus' face in a burnt piece of toast, as soon as there is some little sign of divinity takes place anywhere, immediately people gather in mass to, to try to take advantage of it. And this isn't anything new. Our passage this morning opens up with a similar scene. If you look at verse 1 of John chapter 5, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice you have a verse 4. If you don't have a King James Bible, your Bible will only have a footnote explaining that, that verse 4 was not in the, the earliest manuscripts. Because in all likelihood, John didn't write verse 4. It was probably a, a margin note or a text note on a very early church manuscript that then somehow got in later translations, put into the gospel. But the, 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 the point is, is that, well, in verse 4, what it simply explains is that these people are at this pool because in the past, apparently, an angel had come down, touched the waters, made the waters move, and whoever was in the pool at that time was healed. And so now everybody's there waiting for, this, for these waters to move. Now, whether or not that's true isn't important. That's what you've got to understand about verse 4. What's important is that for whatever reason, there was a multitude of blind and lame and paralyzed people collected around this pool waiting for an opportunity to be healed. And the reason that's important is because in order to understand what he's doing with this story, John wants us to be able to put ourselves in this scene. So envision the... the Dozens or even hundreds of sick and broken people piled up under these colonnades trying to escape the, the hot sun of the Judean summer. Listen, can, can you hear the groaning and the moaning and the wailing of people in perpetual discomfort? The cries of despair as days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years of people withering from sickness and starvation. Imagine the smell of so much disease and open sores without modern medical cure. The outcasts of the outcasts just, just kind of left out there to rot and die in the open air as their injuries and their diseases consume them. Just try to imagine the hopelessness of being a resident of the pool of Bethesda knowing that outside of, of some great miracle, this was where you were going to suffer for the rest of your life until you eventually died. That's the purpose of verses 1 through 3. That's the scene John is setting for our passage this morning because look again at, at verse 5. Because what John wants us to know is that Jesus picked a very particular man out of that, that pitiful crowd to heal for a reason. It says in verse 5, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been, already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. 
And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, I don't know if you've heard it, but currently there's a popular song on Christian radio that's loosely based on this passage uh, called Another One by Elevation Worship. Uh, The lyrics go, "Uh, You do everything on purpose. I can feel your spirit stirring. I've been praying. You've been working. You're working it all for good. So fan the flame and keep it burning. You're refining in the furnace. All the waiting will be worth it because you're working it all for good. And then here's the chorus. Miracle after miracle, open door after open door. Here it comes, so get ready for another one because another one's on the way. Miracle after miracle, open door after open door. Here it comes, so get ready for another one because another one's on the way. Now don't get me wrong, the song is catchy, inspiring even. Uh, the problem is they didn't read the Bible. They did, especially this story. Just take a quick peek at verse 13. It says, after Jesus, uh, excuse me, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the, play, in, in, in the place where he was healed. In other words, as soon as Jesus healed this man, he certainly was mobbed by all kinds of other helpless people in this place. I mean, this guy's been there. They all know him. He steps up and walks out. Jesus is a hot commodity at that moment. So John's careful to to add this important detail that after Jesus healed this this one man, he split. Meaning if that song was accurate, the the chorus would be more like just one miracle and Jesus is out. So it sucks if he doesn't pick you. That would be a more accurate song chorus. In other words, before we dive into this message, we need to remember that this passage is not ultimately about Jesus healing this invalid. Otherwise, he would have stuck around and healed a lot more, like he does in other parts of the Bible. But he didn't. He singled out this one man and then left. Because just like last week, what we need to recognize is this miracle is a sign. It's an arrow that's intended to point towards something more than the miracle itself. Which means we need to be looking for what this sign is pointing toward instead of becoming overly concerned with the arrow. So, so what is it about? What's this particular miracle about? What, what unique aspect of Jesus does this sign point to? Well, it's pretty simple. It tells us that Jesus has not only the compassion, but the authority to heal people who are hopelessly incapable of healing themselves. People who had been cast aside by society. And I think Jesus chose this particular man... Because he wants us to recognize that just like this man, in the midst of a multitude of helpless people, we too were pitifully helpless spiritually. Even with all of our doctors and all of our exercise regimens and all of our diets and all of our nutrition and all of our perfumes, among a stinking, helpless mass of spiritually dying people, just like this man, we too were the most helpless. In other words, if you want to know what this passage has to do with you, then cozy up next to this invalid and ask yourself, what does it look like to be healed by Jesus? 
What does it look like to be healed by Jesus? Because what looks on the outside to be a story about Jesus healing a man who is physically helpless to heal himself is actually a sign pointing to the Savior who can heal people spiritually who are incapable of healing themselves. People who were incapable of healing themselves until one day, just like with this man, Jesus asks them, do you want to be healed? In the midst of their disease and their spiritual infirmity and sickness and death, Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? And I'd say he's asking us the same question this morning. So do you? Do you want to be healed? Like I said, I'm not talking about your physical ailments. Do you want to be healed from your sin and your shame? Do you want to be healed from your weakness and your failings? Do you want to be healed from your spiritual inadequacy and uselessness? And I get it, that's not everybody this morning. I'm certain there's a few people here who think they're doing pretty good. For whom I would have a different yet just as important question, which is, do you want to be rescued from the emptiness of your success? Do you want to be rescued from the futility of your influence and comfort? Do you want to be rescued from the mirage that you're doing okay taking care of yourself? Because it doesn't matter who you are. This morning, Jesus is asking us, do you want to be healed? If you've already answered yes to that question, like I know most of you have in this room, then, then you know in a, in a spiritual way what this invalid's experiencing physically. You know about the, the compassionate authority of Jesus Christ, that when He chooses someone to be healed, physically or spiritually, just like John says in verse 9, they don't have a choice. When Jesus chooses to tell someone who's spiritually dead, live, they don't hit the, 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 the snooze button on salvation. They fly out of the grave of condemnation and judgment involuntarily to, to life everlasting sometimes. So do you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to experience the compassionate authority of someone like Jesus Christ? Because if you do, then again, what does it look like to be healed by Jesus? Well, first, look at the second half of verse 9, where we see that being healed by Jesus looks like resting in rejoicing. Looks like resting in rejoicing. Second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So let's, let's stop there before we go too far. I want you to think about what John has intentionally left out, has intentionally left to our imaginations between verse 9 and 10. 
For 38 years, you have been confined to a mat at the pool of Bethesda until one day you're approached by a man who commands you to get up and walk. And to your amazement, you feel the muscles in your legs start to grow. You feel the, the steadiness of your bones returning. You feel the sureness of your balance coming back to you. Until, like Isaiah 35 predicted, you have this irrepressible urge to leap like a deer in the presence of your Messiah. And so you do. You take off. You take off for the first time in four decades. You don't know where you're going, but you don't care. You're not even, you're not even sure where you're going to end up. But you can feel the wind in your face as you're running through the streets. You can feel the dirt in between your toes as they grip the ground to propel you faster and faster and faster. You're knocking into people as you turn corner after corner. Your eyes consuming the beauty of the world that you haven't seen in a lifetime. But then you figure out where you want to go. So you laugh and you cry and you rejoice as you bounce like Tigger through the streets of Jerusalem making your way to the temple to offer a sacrifice to God for the first time in nearly 40 years. Because you have been released from, from the bondage of your brokenness. You have been freed from the shackles of your sickness. You've been set loose from the prison of your powerlessness until you finally get there and are told, but it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. You see, we can learn a great deal about what it looks to be healed by Jesus, both from what this man is doing and when Jesus commanded him to do it. We can learn a lot, both from what this man was doing and when Jesus commanded him to do it. Look back up at verse 1 real quick. John says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there were several feasts commanded in, in Leviticus by God, but they all follow the same pattern. After six days of sacrifice and, and worship and prayer, there was the seventh day or the Sabbath, the culmination of the feast, where God commanded everyone to rest. Meaning Jesus didn't just wander into Jerusalem on the last day of the feast and see this man there. No, he's already been there for six days, which means he intentionally waited until the Sabbath to command this man to take up his mat and walk. Meaning, I want you to follow the connection with me here. If this man's former condition, if his paralysis, if his brokenness is symbolic of our spiritual condition, then so is Jesus' command of our healing. Meaning, if Jesus told this man to get up and enjoy his physical healing on the day he's supposed to rest, then that's what Jesus says we're supposed to do spiritually as well. The Sabbath has always been about rest, and it always will be. But the rest that Jesus has prescribed for this man and for us is joy is experiencing the joy of the healing we have received. It's the, the rest of vigorously enjoying what Christ has done for us. 
And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that the Sabbath that we have in Christ is, is no longer just a day. It's every day for eternity. So when we look for an answer to the question of what it looks like to be healed by Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, what were we healed from? And what does it look like to rejoice in that healing? What does it look like for us to run through the streets like a deer, as it were, having been healed from our spiritual paralysis? Well, if our sickness, if our, if our infirmity, if our paralysis was our sin and our inability to do anything about it, our, our complete helplessness to please God on our own, then our condition was one of shame and regret. A, a state of grief born from the futility of not being able to please God on our own any more than this man could get up and walk on his own. Which means if you want to know what it looks like to celebrate to rejoice, to, to rest in the healing that we have from Jesus Christ, then it looks like the opposite of that shame and regret. It looks like complete freedom from shame and hopelessness. It looks like freedom from failure and futility. It looks like rejoicing in the rest that we have from trying to please God. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus did it for us. Let me bring this down to earth so we can move on. What would you think if this man said to these religious leaders, you know, I think you're right. He took his mat, went back to the pool of Bethesda, and laid down on it until the next day when he was allowed to walk. That'd sound crazy. Is that what Jesus wanted this man to do? Of course not. So why do we keep taking our mats and going back and lying down in our shame and our futility and our anxiety, and our fear, and our hopelessness. When Jesus has commanded us to enjoy the freedom He bought for us from these things on the cross. For example, if you sin, if you do something you know you shouldn't, how long should you lay on your mat and be ashamed of that sin? How long should you be dejected and humiliated? What, what is the appropriate amount of time you should be ashamed for God to know you're sorry enough? Because Jesus would say, why have you come back to this place? I told you to walk out of here. I told you to pick up your mat and run in the freedom of that shame because I already paid for that sin. And you might be thinking, man, Grant, that sounds like, like you're saying it's okay to sin. No. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm talking about the freedom of living like Jesus has already pleased God on our behalf, regardless of how or how often we accidentally sin. I'm talking about not taking our mat back to the pool of Bethesda and wallowing in our shame because we tripped when Jesus commanded us to walk. I'm talking about running through the streets of our lives, resting from our labor to be perfect. The rejoicing in the freedom and the happiness of the healing we've received from Jesus, just like this man must have done. Resting the way Jesus commanded him to by rejoicing on the Sabbath. Now, you might still be thinking, yeah, Grant, but what about repentance? I mean, what about how the Bible says our grief over our sin is supposed to grow in us this desire to to move further and further away from those things that, that might cause us shame. 
Well, I think that's a great question because not only does being healed by Jesus look like resting and rejoicing like this man did, but look at verse 14 where John also makes it clear that being healed by Jesus also looks like resting in righteousness. Resting in righteousness, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Now, I think it's really cool how Jesus reacts. He says, see, you are well. That's the Bible's way of saying, like Jesus found this dude in the temple, and he's like, look at you, man, running all over here like your legs work. That's awesome. That's basically what Jesus is saying. But look at also what he says in the second half of verse 14. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, some scholars think what Jesus means is that this man was originally paralyzed because he committed some sin when he was younger. Like, he was trying to rob a house or something and fell and broke his back, and that's why he was an invalid. So, they would say, Jesus is saying, see that you don't sin like that again and something worse happened to you. I, however, like other scholars, I I think Jesus means something different. I mean, I've already mentioned how I think Jesus picked this particular man because he was one of the worst at this pool. So how could there be anything worse than what he had already experienced for 38 years? Which is why I think Jesus is actually referring to a far worse consequence than another physical ailment. I think he's referring to eternal consequences. I think Jesus is saying to, the, to this man and to people like us, people who have been healed of our spiritual paralysis, see that your life reflects the, the healing you've received. See that there is fruit from your healing, that eternal judgment doesn't happen to you. In fact, this command is echoed by Paul several times in his letters when in kind of different ways he, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the salvation you have received. In other words, if this man's paralysis in this story is is symbolic of the effects of sin on our lives spiritually, then why would we want to return to being an invalid? If Jesus has saved us from the devastating spiritual effects of paralysis, of hate and bitterness, if He's saved us from pride and sexual immorality and greed and so on and so on, then why would we want to return to it? Why would we want to take our mat back to the pool of Bethesda and cripple ourselves again with sin? And that's not a rhetorical question. Because the truth of the matter is, is if you're like me, you have bought and paid for an annual pass to the pool of Bethesda, so you can stop by there whenever you like. So I'm asking a serious question. If this man's physical healing represents ours spiritually, then why are we so quick to return to our sinful mats when it's so obvious how ludicrous that would be for this man? Why do we keep going back to our condition of sin when it's clear how crazy it would be for this man to go back to the pool of Bethesda? Well, not only do I think that the answer is pretty simple, but... I think it's why we need this passage at the beginning of John chapter 5 so badly. Because the reason we keep returning to our sin is because we don't see ourselves as being saved from as much as this man. We don't see ourselves as being as helpless as him. 
We don't see ourselves as being as spiritually crippled as this man. We don't see ourselves as being as spiritually desperate as this man. And therefore, we don't see ourselves as being saved, as being rescued, as being freed from as much as this man did. Our salvation doesn't seem as incredible as this man's physical rescue did. Which means this, I've said this before, the way to want to rest in righteousness, the way to want to, to not be obligated to go back, but, but to want to, to walk in a manner worthy of the salvation you've received, the way to want to do that is to grow your understanding of that salvation. Grow your comprehension of, of what's been done for you. Get as close to this man as you can by reckoning how helpless you were before Jesus intervened. Try to comprehend the depth of your own spiritual paralysis before Jesus showed up. Now, how do I do that, you ask? How do I do that? Because again, I think the answer is pretty simple, but it may not be how you think. Because the answer is this, listen, the answer is not to dwell on your sin, but to dwell on the one who saved you from it. If you want to understand the, the, the length and the depth and the breadth of what Christ has done, to you, done for you, don't dwell on your sin. That was the problem in the first place. It was pride. Dwell on the one who saved you from it. Don't dwell on your sin or your failure. Dwell on the one who saved you from it. Dwell on the purity and the power and the perfection of your God. Dwell on the majesty and the might and the massiveness of your God. Dwell on the strength and the sovereignty and the supremacy of your God. Because when you do that, when you dwell on the, the bigness and the power of God, then just like Moses and Isaiah and Paul and John before you, when you dwell on God, the more you dwell on God, the more you'll understand the magnitude of what you've been healed from. The more magical it will feel that your crippled little spiritual legs even work the more amazing it will be that you can do anything righteous. The more you submerge yourself into getting to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the more excited you'll be to use your righteous legs. That's what being healed by Jesus looks like. It looks like, like rejoicing in what He's done for you because you have comprehended the magnitude of the chasm that He crossed to heal you. It looks like understanding how far Jesus condescended on our behalf in order to save us from ourselves. And the more we recognize that, listen, the more we'll want to use our spiritually healed legs to walk like Him. The more like this man that we understand what we have been saved from, the more we will want to walk like the one who saved us. Once we recognize who our Savior is, then we'll be people who are consumed with wanting nothing more 
than to walk beside the one who gave his life to restore ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us an understanding of the rest that you have bought for us through Jesus Christ. Give us an understanding of of the amount of joy that you have intended for that to be in our lives. Give us the freedom and the desire to to live in that joy, to live in the happiness of of our salvation. Father, use that joy to to build in us, to, to grow in us a desire to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in us a desire to want to walk like the one who saved us. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.